Just a quick note before we begin. There's a great event coming up on May 16th in Freehold, New Jersey. As of now, the run is still on. The event coordinator is monitoring the coronavirus closely, and I will share any update if things change within the next two months. But if you're in the area or plan on visiting, check out the Marine Corps Run for Freedom 5K. This event was organized by Marines, and proceeds will go to the Marine Raider Foundation, the Semper Fi Fund, and the local Marine Corps League Detachment. It's a great event, and I'll be there, so come say hi if you're in the area. If you're not a runner, there will be an after-party with $1 drafts. If that's not a good enough reason to show up, I'm not sure what is. Visit MarineCorpsRunForFreedom5k.org for more details. I've included a link in the episode description, and we'll share the event on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History and on Instagram at History of the Marines. Now let's get into some Barbary Pirates. Welcome to Episode 39 of History of the Marine Corps, To the Shores of Tripoli, Part 4. Our last episode followed Eaton and the Marines' march to Dern and covered some intense moments between the Marines and the mercenaries. We also reviewed the attack on Dern and the phenomenal action of Marines, despite being outnumbered 10 to 1. This week, we continue to cover the confrontation between Yusuf's army and the defenders of Dern. Eaton and O'Bannon were doing a great job at defending the captured fort. The plan was to move further inland and capture Benghazi and ultimately Tripoli. However, those plans will change after Eaton received some devastating news from Tobias Lear. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. After years of planning, months of preparing, and close to a two-month march across the desert, the initial attack against Yusuf was a success. Eaton captured the city in less than two and a half hours. A total of 14 died under O'Bannon, two of which were Marine Privates Edward Stewart and John Witten. Hamet's soldiers were a different story. The number of deaths isn't known, but estimates put the number in the hundreds. Yusuf knew that Hamet and Eaton were coming for him, and he called for his army to take back Dern. Hassan Bey was the commander of this army, and on May 13th, he sent a probing attack to the city. The defenders repelled the attacking force, and little damage was done. The following day, Hassan sent 1,200 men to Hamet's position, and the enemy was able to defeat the defenders relatively quickly. They were after Hamet. As they approached the palace, Yusuf's army faced musket fire from the locals who supported reinstating Hamet. O'Bannon's cannoneers joined in on the attack from the fort, and the American ships helped with broadsides from the sea. The combined attack managed to push back the advancing army. O'Bannon saw the retreat as an opportunity, and he wanted to take his marines and go after the fleeing force, but Eaton refused this request. He didn't want to make the same mistake the governor did and leave the fort unprotected. A few deserters abandoned Yusuf's army, and they reported to Eaton that the soldiers were refusing to attack the fort again. It was too strong, and the support from the American ships made an assault extremely dangerous. 
tactics changed, and instead of another attack, Hassan decided to cut off supplies instead. The enemy surrounded the city, made camp, and decided to wait out the Americans. Eaton still owned the harbor, so despite cutting off supplies from land, the town still had support from the ships off the coast. The warships sent provisions to the city, but they weren't prepared to support an entire army. The Nautilus was sent north to Malta to pick up more supplies. Hamet's army was getting restless, and on May 20th, he asked for more money to pay his soldiers. They were threatening to leave if they didn't get paid. The commander of the American fleet responded to Hamet and said, quote, If the people of Dern are faithful to Hamet, they should be satisfied. If not, we should turn the guns of the fort and ships on the town and destroy every house in it. Unquote. To make matters worse, the weather for the next three days wasn't pleasant, and multiple dust storms slammed the Marines. No one was immune from this storm, including the men at sea. The sandstorm hit the warships, and it covered the riggings and the spars with sand. Captain Hull on the Argus reported that it was almost impossible to look towards the wind without getting blinded by sand. The men in the city faced the brunt of the storm, and Eaton stated that the gale-force-like winds combined with dust looked like smoke from a large fire. The heat also took a toll on the men, and the extreme temperature warped Eaton's table and books. Men reported that cups made of glass were too hot to hold, sand was in every orifice, which sometimes felt like suffocation, and the gale-force winds blew tents away. Eaton was still recovering from his wrist injury during the attack on Dern, and he stated that fine dust was getting into his cut and it burned like hell. The storm helped delay any future attacks, and both sides were at a standstill for nearly two weeks. Hassan issued a bounty on Eaton. He agreed to pay $12,000 to anyone who captured Eaton alive, and $6,000 for his head. This bounty wasn't limited to the men of the city, and Hassan offered a woman a diamond to poison Eaton. Fortunately, deserters reported this to Eaton, and the Americans issued an order not to accept food from any locals. On May 28th, O'Bannon gathered his marines and a few Greek soldiers for an attack on an outpost near the city. Not much happened during this fight, but the Americans learned that Yusuf's army was gaining reinforcements, and they were planning an attack. Eaton started to plan his defenses for this potential attack, but on June 1st, he received some unwanted news that came from Commodore Barron. Both Barron and Consul Tobias Lear agreed that the victory at Dern provided a great opportunity to reach a peace deal with Yusuf. After all the planning, the 500-mile march, and the remarkable victory at Dern, they wanted the battle to end. Lear was already on his way to meet with Yusuf, and if both parties were able to reach a deal, Eaton and the other Americans would have no other option but to evacuate Dern. This outcome was devastating for Eaton and O'Bannon. Through overwhelming odds, the Americans were able to pull off a coup that many felt was impossible. They captured a city with relative ease and planned on taking their forces to Tripoli to finish their mission. The support from leadership was no longer there, and now Hamet was forced to regain his rightful position without further help from the United States. 
Commodore Barron's hesitation to help Hamet wasn't a secret. Eaton knew that he wasn't entirely comfortable with this decision. Still, after Barron approved the trek through Northern Africa, Eaton didn't anticipate the Commodore to stop the mission entirely and leave Hamet to fend for himself. Eaton sat at his now sandstorm-deformed table and wrote Barron a letter. He didn't hold anything back, and he refused to betray Hamet. He voiced his concerns about Yusuf and the safety of Hamet, stating that if Yusuf should get a hold of him, the chances are good that he would be executed. Eaton also reasoned that victory was near, and beating Yusuf would be more beneficial to the United States. A victory would be a substantial blow to the Barbary system. He argued that stopping now would impact the United States Navy negatively and damage the nation's honor. I think the most thought-provoking part of Eaton's letter was when he chastised Barron. Eaton stated that abandoning Hamet would go against the principles of honor and justice which the country is known for. Every time I read correspondences, decisions by Congress, or journal entries from political leaders, I try to take a neutral approach. It's that hindsight again. It's easy to be judgmental when you already know the outcome. Both Barron and Lear doubted Hamet's word and his ability to pull off this coup. I understand how they came to this decision. The United States had a history of Barbary state leaders backing out on their word. The Corsairs violated multiple peace treaties, and it always resulted in more payment and resources from the United States. Hamet was also indecisive, and multiple challenges during the march to Dern helped cement the thought that he had some serious holes in his leadership skills. Eaton must have realized this as well, but he was invested. Eaton, O'Bannon, and the Marines just embarked on the longest and most challenging raids ever taken by the United States. He gave his word and the country's word that they would support Hamet in this mission, and men have died fighting for this cause. The promises Hamet made were alluring, and if he kept his word, it would positively benefit the United States for years to come. The United States had made more progress in a few years than Europe had done for hundreds. The motivation for Barron and Lear's decision was mostly economic. This expedition was expensive for the United States at the time. The cards were in Lear's favor as well. After the victory at Dern, Yusuf was panicked. One of the Philadelphia prisoners reported that the Bashaw was disturbed at the news of the victory in Dern, and if it was up to him, he would gladly make peace and release the prisoners without the consideration of money. Yusuf regretted his decision to refuse the previous terms of peace. If Tobias Lear moved forward with Eaton's plan, they could have succeeded without having to pay. Unfortunately, this was not Lear's decision, and despite the protests from Eaton and the success of his expedition, Lear offered $60,000 to Yusuf for the American prisoners. The Bashaw accepted Lear's offer without hesitation. This deal was made without notifying Eaton or Hamet. The Marines and hundreds of men from Hamet's army were still in Dern, defending counterattacks from Yusuf's army. The defending force was able to push back multiple raids sent to the fort and into the town, but supplies were running low, and Eaton was concerned that they would soon run out. 
Based on his experience with the mercenaries during their march across the desert, low supplies would most likely result in a mutiny. Eaton sent a letter asking for support, and he patiently waited for a response, but time was limited, and they were quickly running low. While Eaton and his men were defending the city, the peace settlement was accepted and finalized on June 3rd. The Philadelphia prisoners were released, and Lear agreed to the evacuation of all American forces from Dern. The American consul betrayed Eaton and Hamet. When Eaton finally received a reply to his request for more supplies, he was shocked when he opened it up and read that peace had been established. What pissed him off the most was the order for him to evacuate Dern and head back to the United States. Eaton expected to continue his battle to Benghazi and eventually to Tripoli. Victory at Dern came at the cost of blood from his men. Now it seems that their loss was in vain. A peace agreement also meant that Eaton had to break his word to Hamet. He was furious with this decision and immediately sent a letter to Commodore Barron. Most likely there wasn't much that could have been done to reverse this decision. But in his letter, Eaton argued that accepting a peace deal, despite a victory at Dern, showed a serious weakness to a culture that only respected strength. The repercussions could be great. Eaton wrote, quote, Certainly they, and perhaps the world, will place an unjust construction on this retreat. At any rate, it is a retreat, and a retreat of Americans. Unquote. Eaton decided to wait for a reply instead of following the instructions to evacuate the city immediately. On June 11th, he received a response. The letter was from Lear, and I found it to be heartless and full of political speak. I'll have the letter up on historyofthemarinecorps.com so you could judge for yourself. Most of the letter brags about Lear's success in negotiating. He talks about rejecting the original terms of the peace settlement and offering ultimatums. For example, Lear mentions that he rejected the $200,000 demand for peace. Instead, he only offered $60,000 for prisoners, but not one cent will be paid for peace. Lear talks about the heroic bravery of the Americans at Dern and how it made an impression on Yusuf. But after the bloodshed from Americans, including a musket ball through Eaton's wrist, I'm pretty sure this platitude angered Eaton more than reassured him. The decision to agree to a peace settlement would forever embitter Eaton. And I can't say that I disagree with his new attitude. Everyone had made extreme sacrifices for this expedition. Many men, which included Eaton, O'Bannon, and the Marines, were pushed to the limit marching across northern Africa. Men almost starved, died of dehydration, and the Marines were almost slaughtered when 200 mercenaries charged them. When they finally reached the city, Eaton was able to capture Dern in less than two and a half hours. Their plan was working, a plan that was approved by multiple senior-level military leaders and politicians, including the President of the United States. But with the treaty in place, Eaton didn't have much of an option. He had to leave. But he knew just packing up and fleeing town would be disastrous. If Yusuf's army caught wind that the Americans were leaving, this might encourage them to attack. Eaton decided that he would have to leave in secret. The following morning, he called for O'Bannon and Hamet to talk about the next steps. 
When O'Bannon heard the news, he was furious at the decision. And Hamet was very upset as well. Throughout the march, he felt that he would be betrayed. Unfortunately, his fears turned into reality. That afternoon, Eaton carried on with his duties as if everything was normal. He inspected his men and issued an alert to prepare to attack. He handed out ammunition and rations and sent scouts to gather information about the enemy's position. At night, Eaton positioned the Marines along the waterfront to serve as a decoy to the enemy. Fires were lit in the fort to appear like people were still there. While the Marines stood guard, Eaton slowly evacuated the foot soldiers and the Greek cannoneers. He ordered them to get on the boats, which they did, but they were utterly confused about why. He sent a letter for Hamet, requesting an interview, which was the signal for the evacuation. Eaton spoke to his friend one last time in Dern before they departed. Hamet would join the Americans in their departure, but he was reluctant to do so. He had no other option. Without help from the Americans, he would surely be overrun. The Marines, officers, and Eaton were the last to leave. The last of the Americans headed out without fully completing their mission. When the mercenaries heard about the Americans and Hamet leaving, they panicked, and many ran for the mountains. The citizens who joined forces with Hamet now faced Yusuf's army by themselves. Part of the peace settlement required Yusuf to offer amnesty to everyone in Dern who swore loyalty to him. The next morning, a ship from the USS Constellation went to shore, flying a white flag and delivering the amnesty offer by Yusuf. When the crewmen returned, they reported that there was nothing but despair in the faces of the people who remained. The locals who stood up against Yusuf rejected the amnesty offer. They understood how deceitful Yusuf was and knew he wouldn't keep his word. They decided to defend themselves until the last moment. Many fled the city, but the remaining population had their throats slit by Hassan and Mustafa for their disloyalty. Hamet would be carefully provided for by the United States, but parted way with the Americans. He presented Lieutenant Presley O'Bannon with the gift. Hamet gave the man who he called the Brave American a sword which he carried while with the Mamelukes in Egypt. The sword was jeweled with a Mameluke hilt. This symbol of gratitude is one of the greatest traditions the Marine Corps still practices to this day. Archibald Henderson issued an order that authorized Marine Corps officers to wear a replica of the Mameluke sword. The order took effect on May 1, 1826. At the time, a sword cost $45. Henderson wrote to Lieutenant Colonel Richard Smith about the price. $45 was a lot of money for Marines at the time. But Henderson said, I presume they are of the very best materials. Officers still use the Mameluke sword to this day. However, expect to pay over $600 for one. As the constellation sailed away, Eaton felt nothing but guilt for abandoning the city. He wrote, quote, In a few minutes, we shall lose sight of this devoted city, which was experienced as strange reversed in so short a time as ever was recorded in the disasters of war, thrown from proved success and elated prospects 
into an abyss of hopeless wretchedness. We drop them from ours into the hands of the enemy for no other crime but too much confidence in us. The man whose fortunes we have accompanied this far experiences a reverse as striking. Unquote. As the constellation approached Malta, Eaton sent another letter to the new commodore of the fleet, Captain John Rogers. His time at sea and fighting this war was over. In what would have been one of the nation's greatest victories at the time, Eaton felt defeated. He wrote, quote, I have no reason for remaining any longer in the sea. Therefore, I request you will have the goodness to allow me a passage in the first ship of war of your squadron, which you may dispatch to the United States. Unquote. Next week, we'll finish up this war, and we'll talk about how the country felt about the decision for peace. Thanks for listening. Our next episode will complete the first Barbary War. We'll head back to the United States and take a look at how the decision to reach a peace settlement was taken by Congress. We'll also take a look at the Philadelphia prisoners and end with some statistics about the war. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and take a look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.